In the streets of Laredo I walked out in Laredo one day I spied a poor cowboy Wrapped up in white linen All wrapped in white linen As cold as the clay Welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, I am now going to begin the final few episodes of this HP Lovecraft read-through with a with a relatively close look at uh, the two-volume collection of Means to Freedom. This is uh, a collection of the extant letters of HP Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard. Um, they go from 1930 to, I guess, uh, 35, um, right up until uh, uh, Robert E. Howard's death. Um, so altogether, there was, I think, about 140 uh, letters between the two of them. That includes like postcards and, and shorter letters. Uh, probably about half of those are substantial letters, you know, of multiple pages. Some are monster letters. Um, and obviously not all are extant, so, um, you know, I think maybe 30 or 40 or so don't exist, uh, weren't saved. Um, so we don't have the full correspondence, but we have enough to be able to really track their conversation over a number of years. And I think it uh, reveals a lot about uh, Lovecraft and, of course, about Robert E. Howard, too. Um, now, I'm focusing basically on four themes as they show up so i got four highlighters four colored four different colored highlighters and i identified them and, and pretty much everything in these letters can go into these four big themes one of these is just generally the weird fiction market or anything about stories uh sharing stories uh recommending uh stories or commenting on the state of the weird fiction market in the 1930s then we have uh, a bunch of uh, a, a very long conversation about civilization. And this is kind of breaking up into two parts, two different sort of themes. One is kind of global civilizations, non-American uh, histories, and kind of the, the larger scope of, of civilization in a, in a broader historical sense. Uh, then those then we have sections focused on American civilization specifically. Uh, and we got a lot on regionalism here, especially the, the, the contrast between like uh, the Texas frontier and, and New England, um, but also a lot on contemporary issues, the things that are in the news at the time, and just overall perspectives on America, and that includes American race. Uh, relations, which is, of course, the major focus of this podcast. Even though I haven't talked about it much, it's not the biggest issue in a lot of the revisions, the things I've been reading lately. Um, but it's there in a, to a degree. But certainly, I've been arguing it's it's really central to his to his work. And then, I guess the fourth theme that I really highlighted has has to do with folklore and mythology and and philosophy in general. I guess I could have a fifth theme really focused on philosophical issues, but I just sort of combine that with with folklore. So as these come up, I'll I'll highlight these these themes. 
So I realize not everyone's going to have access to A Means to Freedom, this collection. Um, it's, a, it's a little pricey. It's published by Hippocampus Press, edited by S.T. Joshi, David Schultz, and Rusty Burke. And it's a very excellent collection. It's got pretty good footnotes. Um, it's got uh, for each letter. The footnotes come after each letter. So, uh, to, so they help us a little bit. They obviously could have been more detailed. And there, there could be a much more thorough checking of references here and there. But the footnotes certainly help us. And then we get a lot. We get a very clear uh, identification of each letter. Was it typed? Was it handwritten? Was it a postcard? Whatever. So, um, so that the the editing job here is really excellent. And I, I think that's the case for all the Hippocampus Press uh, collections of letters. I'm not going to look at all of them, obviously. I'm just going to look at these. I think they do sum up really well uh, where we where we've been with our look at Lovecraft and and I think it can kind of close up our our conversation. Um, I think it's such an interesting and fascinating debate they have about uh, civilization, about uh, what freedom is. It's obviously in the title of the collection, and it's certainly an important theme um, about race, about American history. Um, and although the debate gets very contentious, it's, it's a, you see this developing friendship between the two and, uh, that's, that's fun to watch as well. Um, a much younger writer talking to an older, uh, more established writer, although Howard, I think would write, end up writing and publishing more than, than Lovecraft, even though he, he wrote for, uh, he only, you know, he didn't live very long, but at this, when it starts, it's really a respectful younger writer talking to a, an older, more experienced figure in the profession. And by the end of the conversation, they're, they're much more having a conversation like equals. And you see the erudition the, the, of each of these people, uh, how much they knew, how much they read, how much uh, they, you know, they were just, just how brilliant both of these people were, I guess. All right, so let's jump into this. Oh, by the way, I'm going to do these about 100 pages at a time as my uh, my core podcast uh, is, is organized. So it's going to be about nine episodes. We've got about 900 pages of, of letters to work our way through. So let's let's get into it. Um, the, the first uh, letter was in June of 1930, and we don't ha- that doesn't exist anymore. Um, Howard wrote a letter to Lovecraft. Um, I... I and I'm not quite sure what's in that letter. You can kind of get a hint of some of the themes they start talking about. They certainly talk about weird fiction. And um, their earliest conversation has to do with the migrations to the British Isles. Um, so that's probably in those letters. We have a reply uh, by Lovecraft later in June of 1930. And then we have the first letter we have extant is uh, a Robert E. Howard to Lovecraft letter dated July 1st, 1930, and it, it was typed. I think, all, I think all the Howard letters were typed. At one point, he even complains about his handwriting not being that good and having to need to type. So this letter opens with a, with a discussion, often the weird fiction stuff or the when they exchange stories or comment on each other's works. That tended to come early in the letters, and then they'd get into like the, the meat of it. So the sections on weird fiction on the the market on the stories tends to be early in the letters so um starts out and he's just praising lovecraft he says you know 
No writer, past or modern, has equaled you in the realm of bizarre fiction. And he even compares him to Poe and Arthur Macon. And he emphasizes, he mentions a few stories here, like Rats on the Wall, The Outsider, and The Whore at Red Hook, and others. Um, and he sent this piece of poetry called The Dweller. I mean, Lovecraft sent, earlier sent a, a, a poem to him called The Dweller, which is from the Fungi of Yugoth. Uh, collection which I talked about so these kinds of things I won't say much about throughout the series because they're not the most interesting to me but if you want to follow their conversation about weird fiction you certainly can through these letters um, they get into the the then he gets into the the crux of their conversation and and it has to do with the settlement of of the British Isles and basically um, although they both kind of talk about they're a bit humble saying like this is a bit out of my field I'm not really an expert on this kind of thing, but they both that well, you kind of see the heart of their dispute as will emerge later on in these early conversations. And that is specifically Howard seems to think there's a lot of mobility and culture mixing and and migrations and things involved in the peopling of the British Isles and the establishment of, of British cultures. Right. Of course, there's many different cultures. There's like the the. The Anglo-Saxon culture, you have the the Cymric people and the the, the Gales and the, the Picts and these different uh, Celtic groups, right? The Cymric people are, are the people of Wales. So they kind of focus mostly on the Gales and the, and the Cymric people, so the people more of Ireland and, and I guess Scotland to a degree, and the Cymric people, the people who would settle in Wales. These are the parts of the British Isles that, of course, would would remain kind of more Celtic while... England itself was settled by the Germanic migrations, right? So that's how you kind of get these cultural differences, these different nations in the British Isles. Um, but anyways, that's kind of Howard's focus seems to be on migration. Uh, and Lovecraft is more hesitant about this. He seems to believe very strongly in the need for kind of a long settled culture. And so he's less as open to the idea that like these migratory people, you know, interacted and kind of made cultures right um now it's not a he's, he's not really too insistent on this here he will be in other parts of the conversation um but here he's a little bit distant right so he's a little bit i mean he seems not to care that much about this deeper history in terms of his broader thesis of civilizations but as we've seen again and again he does think civilization comes from being rooted in a place and having kind of a kind of social stability and, and kind of building the wall to keep out foreign in, in invasive cultures. Um, so anyways, uh, this is how he begins this. Uh, Howard, I'm going to impose on your good nature to the extent of discussing my reasons for believing the Simric people were the first in the British Isles. Right. My education on the subject is meager but it is one that has always interested me greatly, perhaps because of the dominating percent of Gaelic in my own veins. Such authorities, as I have read, seem very conflicting in their views and self-contradictory. Uh, so he's saying, like, I've read stuff and I kind of have a, th a theory about this, but I don't know for sure. Right. Now, what's his evidence for this? Well, he's getting this from anthropologists and linguists and such. And... Basically, when he gets to kind of the roots of the Irish and the Cymric people and the Gaels and, and these groups, he sees them very mixed. He writes, 
And his evidence of this is the languages are mixed, right? And I guess it's always tricky when you try to look at the deep histories of languages. There are people who are able to do this really well, um, but it is kind of murky. We don't have like textual evidence of this stuff. We have linguistic evidence. So you just look for, you know, uh, cognates and, and you look for borrowed words and you can kind of trace the history. It's like what they did with the Indo-European languages. Right, they look for cognates and they say, well, these people had a word for ocean that's different than these people, but they have the same word for cow uh, and whatever. And so we can kind of trace movements this way. It's called glottochronology, if, if you want to know the, the field of linguistics. And he writes this. Uh, I consider the language Cymric to have been so to have been so mixed with Mediterranean, Latin, Saxon and Scandinavian languages that it retains but little of pristine Celtic quality. However, I believe this mixing took place at a comparably modern date and not and that the language of the ancient Gauls and Britons was as close to the Aryan root as that of the Gaels, with the exception of the Chu sound, which the Gaels retain longer than the Brythons, end quote. And he kind of says this uh, is really describing the Celtic migration. When he says modern here, he doesn't mean like the modern era so much. Uh, he means, you know, more maybe like the early Middle Ages or something, you know. Again, with these non-literate societies, it's hard to date when exactly these, these things took place. And he argues that it was the what he calls the Brythonic people. So if you don't know what that is, that's like uh, the Celtic group. The Gaels and the Brythonics were both Celtic groups. The Brythonics were more like the Welsh, right, and the Scots. And the Gaels are more the Irish, right, the, the, a different a subgroup of the Celtic group. Um, and he writes, my idea is that the Brythonic people were the first to branch away from the Aryan stock somewhere on the plains of Asia, and that they and not the Gaels brought the Bronze Age into Europe. My reason for this view is that in regard to the bronze is the fact that Caesar found the Britons still using swords of copper and bronze, end quote. Now, that's kind of dubious evidence. I'm sure you can find that evidence in Caesar's, because uh, Caesar wrote a book about the conquest of Gaul and uh, parts of Britain and things, and that's a good source for kind of Druidic cultures and, you know, just the people of the, it's, it's got a good source for early history of this non-literate culture. And he thinks, so he kind of thinks that they moved in first and the Gaels stayed with kind of the Celtic Aryans as they migrated into Europe a little bit longer. Um, and he says, I believe that the Gaels were those Celts who remained in the original homeland of the Aryans after the ancestors of the Brythonic races moved westward. Um, so he's, he's kind of getting to an argument that Irish uh, is more of a Mediterranean language in a more of a Mediterranean race rooted more to those Aryan migrations to that region, uh, distinct from the kind of the Brythonic, the, the more Welsh and Scottish cultures. So this all seems pretty, uh, uh, you know, if you're not like invested in this debate, I guess it really doesn't um, matter, but I think it's fascinating because um, it shows an engagement with contemporary scholarship. And we see a lot, we'll see a lot of evidence of this, especially on things like Central Asian thesis of, of human origins. That was a really big idea in the 20s and 30s. They even sent expeditions to Central Asia, to Mongolia and China to try to find the first humans. And of course, now we, we, we think the first humans were in, you know, East, evolved in East Africa. But that was not the core argument at the time. I guess it may be it, it's when they first figured out the Indo-European languages. So you had that kind of Combine, you know, the comparisons between the Indian and the 
European languages, so maybe the human origins are somewhere in there. There's also kind of the, you know, the more, I guess, strict Bible-following anthropologists who, you know, were looking for the Garden of Eden somewhere, and it seemed that would have been in Central Asia somewhere too, just based on the geography of the Bible, I guess. But obviously, Howard and Lovecraft aren't embracing that, like a religious perspective on it. But anyways, um, so he basically makes his argument, uh, as I laid out here. And again, if you're not invested in this, it's, you know, it's probably, it seems just silly to emphasize it so much. And, but Howard really takes this seriously. Um, I think this is how their conversation really began. Something about something Lovecraft wrote sort of triggered Howard and got him you know, asking questions about this. And this begins the back and forth. And he, he, he brings his evidence here. He quotes like uh, Bishop O'Brien of Clone, who was, uh, who, who wrote a lot of like linguistic histories of the British Isles. He even quotes Bede, of course, the, the medieval historian of Britain, uh, Bede, uh, an important innovator in the British language. Um, so he quotes different writers to try to shore up his argument as best he can. Um, and then he kind of he kind of makes this argument then about the Gales after establishing his thoughts about the uh, a little or he he kind of sums it up here. Uh, this is on page twenty of A Means to Freedom. This appears to me to further point to a much larger later entrance of the Gales into the British Isles. The more or less simultaneous invasion of Wales and Scotland by the Gales seems to me the expansion of a new and vigorous and growing tribe than a reviving growth of an ancient and conquered nation. And then he quotes Bede on this now this is already we're, we're seeing like the heart of their their dispute because howard is saying these cultures thrive by expansion and mixing and conquest right that's how cultures expand they don't they don't stay firm in one place and kind of develop in you know in that local sense everything comes through mixture and, and conquest and combination in a sense, he's saying here, migration is central to British history and the settlement of the British Isles. Um, he says, for instance, here, the former view. OK, I quote again from William's History of Ireland. He's, he's got another expert. So he's read a lot about this, obviously. And he says, this struggle, the conquest of Ireland, was brought about by the arrival from abroad of a new tribe or to rise from an old one. The former view seems more probable at the time of great displacement of the Celts was taking place subsequent on the conquest of the Romes. Romans and some of the displaced tribes may have migrated to Ireland. The victors in the struggle appear afterwards as Scots, that is Gales. That's quoting this Williams, right? But it kind of, it, it supports his overall perspective. Um, now, this is something they'll often do in their conversations. They'll talk about history or anthropology, and then they'll shift into folklore and to back it up. And, and Howard does this first here, saying, well, it's not only this, these books I've been reading that suggest it. I also think this is confirmed by folklore, right? So you see these stories in the folklore itself. And he talks about like Parthlonan. Um, sounds like Parthenon. Parthlonan. He was a, kind of a, a legendary Irish hero. I don't know much about the story, but apparently he was a conqueror and an invader too. So Howard Sands like this is backed up by the folklore. And both of these people believe folklore touches reality in a way. You can get some truth about history from reading folklore. It can't be just dispensed as, as stories. So then the letter ends with kind of a, another argument. So he makes 
the argument based on like erudite scholars on language then he sort of tries to make the argument based on folklore and then he tries to make the argument based on race um, and that's how he ends up here he writes and of course both these people were racist they neither were racial egalitarians they actually shared they agreed a lot on some racial issues but how they applied it to their understanding of history was very different he writes uh, another and possibly more obscure reason for my belief is this most of the gales most of the Gauls, sorry, and the Britons seem to have been a large blonde type with light eyes and yellow hair, the true Aryan complexion. But according to certain traditions, the Milesians were, were a dark of a Spanish type. Now, who are these Milesians, you might be saying? Well, the Milesians are, were the mythical kind of settlers of, of, of Britain. And I think Howard is trying to suggest... They're kind of Mediterranean, like maybe like Greekish type of people migrated there. So he says, okay, according to these traditions, the Milesians or Gales retained the Aryan height and light eyes, generally gray in this case, but were dark of skin and hair. The departure from the original Celtic stock might have taken place in Ireland after the invasion, despite legends to the contrary, might have merely been a result of the conquerors mingling with their Mediterranean subjects. But I think it points to long residents or wandering among Hamatic or Turian people before coming into the British Isles. It seems to me that if any great mixing between Aryans and Aboriginal Mediterranean took place in Ireland, it would have been between the earlier peoples. Unquote. So he's saying this mixing took, there was a mixing that took place in the Mediterranean first, and then these people kind of migrated to, Ireland, uh, to modern day Ireland. Right? So that more or less sums up this first first letter um it's mostly about this discussion of of the peopling of 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 the british isles or the cultural peopling of cultural history the cultural anthropology of, of britain and howard lays out a lot of evidence uh for his position on this now the next letter we get is july 20th 1930 and this one is uh, lovecraft to howard i think this one was handwritten Now, there's a little bit about the dweller and other things he's read at the beginning of this letter, but let's let's jump into this this conversation about the Celts. And both, like like Howard, Lovecraft is going to draw in folklore uh, as he does this. He writes uh, first. He says, like, oh, obviously, I'm I'm kind of ignorant about this stuff. You've read more about this than me. But he proceeds to kind of give his opinion nonetheless. Uh, his opinion is not as erudite as Howard's. Um, you know, certainly he read a lot and he was super smart, but he doesn't back it up as much with uh, with evidence. But he does have some interesting commentary on folklore here. Um, but he, he he doesn't like name drop scholars the way Lee Howard does, at least not in this letter. And he kind of says, yeah, I, I, I accept all this. He says, all the linguistic facts which you cite tend to prove an early separation and peril growth of Gaelic and Cimmeric rather than a divergence of the later from the former as a late corruption. It is perfectly reasonable to attribute the Gaelic place names in southern Britain to relatively late Gaelic occupation in the soil. Um, so that's, he kind of says, okay, I'm fine with that uh, argument. But he, he kind of doubts it a little bit. He writes, I must point out, however, that according to most of the conservative statements I have read, the supposed affinities of Celtic to Eastern speech do not bear the light of profound analysis. So where he's touchy is saying like this idea that the 
Gael, like the Irish people sort of migrated from the Mediterranean. This is where I think Lovecraft seems a little more hesitant to fully embrace what Howard's saying. He's saying, okay, fine, these are separate groups and they, 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 they have deep separation. Um, maybe different migrations or whatever, but it does, this doesn't mean they're like a Mediterranean people. Um, and he also says here, languages simply don't mix, all right? Which I don't think is true, obviously. Uh, it seems to me they do mix. But he writes, one need not point out the vast number of cases in which the matter of spurious linguistic interpretations have occurred in perfectly good faith. The distorting and filtering effect of the preconceived theory on the human powers of observation and correlation are much greater than was realized until recently. Um, so he doesn't quite come out and say languages don't mix, but he, he says linguists are often like making too much of like this cognate or that cognate or this grammatical structure and saying, oh, that these are combined or, or morphed. Um, he says, all this makes me disposed to be cautious about statements concerning Celtic Semitic linkages, since the major body of conservative opinion is, or was last I knew, so definitely reluctant to consider them genuine. That is, he's saying there's not really these deeper links to like Central Asia or, or the Middle East or something. Um, now, what he says is like, this is all very interesting, but fundamentally, this is like an ethnic almost a racial issue. He says, the existing Celtic-speaking races of Britain are admittedly an ethnic problem of some complexity, but authorities don't seem to extend this complexity back to their original users, importers of Celtic dialects. It seems to me the idea that all the originally Celtic tribes were purely Nordic Aryan, um, end quote. So he says, basically, this Mediterranean stuff, it's not true. These are maybe different migrations or, diff or different cultures, but they're all tied to the same kind of, I guess, that Nordic uh, group and he says these are just ethnic issues right the race is the same that's that's what i mean to say here uh, in lovecraft's view he says there's one major difference in that the celtic blood actually predominated in britain and ireland so that the surviving stock remains largely celtic nordic in physical type the most notable mass exception being the welsh where the mediterranean blood predominates and quite overwhelmingly so in speech and institutions right so he's, he, he's not saying these migrations don't happen. He even suggests, suggests here that maybe there's something with the Welsh argument. But he's saying these don't matter that much, right? We're really talking about a broader racial group and commonalities. And he totally uh, is really hostile to the idea of Oriental influences. Um, but generally, he says, okay, your broader argument I'm fine with. But then he also gets into, uh, into folklore. And he kind of agrees also with Howard how interesting it is to, to use folklore to get to deeper history. Um, and he says, another thing we can look at to check on legends and to check on the truth of legendary facts is not the legends themselves, but archaeology, right? And he talks a little bit about things he knows. He talks about like the Piltown Man and some other archaeological digs in Britain that maybe suggest some of the early history. And he writes... I believe, therefore, that it will be difficult to prove that the British Isles, possibly a part of the continent at the time of the first settlement, had any civilized, half-civilized, or even advancedly savage inhabitants prior to the coming of the dark Neolithic Mediterraneans. Now, here he's talking about the Neolithic migration, right? Uh, not the migration Howard seems to be suggesting, which is a, a, a more modern, uh, more, I guess, more recent, I guess, migration from the Mediterranean, with these bringing with them these Oriental uh, even Semitic uh, influences. 
then he kind of jumps into something he, he's, he's more comfortable talking about, I guess, um, and that is witchcraft and witches. And he's kind of using this to talk. He makes a, this is a really good section if you want to get to kind of his views on witches. Um, it comes up a few times is in these letters, actually. So if you want to see, you know, just search these letters for witches and you'll see him re repeat this argument many times about the vital, really the idea of the witch cult being like old pre-Christian beliefs that have carried on in a somewhat informal vernacular, but, but quasi-institutional form, right? This is going to be the root of so many of his ideas about traditions, like the Cthulhu cult or whatever, right? It's, it's kind of a parallel to what he thinks is true of the witch cults. He writes, uh, it is known that they once reached down extensively into Western Europe, being probably the stock amongst whom the witch cult, a fertility religion arising in the pastoral and pre-agricultural age, and rite of the witch's Sabbath took their source. Right? And then he talks about myth cycles of fairies, gnomes, and other things um, that anthropologists have been interested in. So then he gets into the race-mixing stuff. Uh, and he, he kind of wants to suggest that if this took place, it took place way back, as far back as possible. So he says, yeah, maybe the Nordic and the, the so-called Mongoloid groups had met, but maybe that was way, way in the past, right? You know, very, very early human history. The, quote, the inevitable probability is that all the Nordic races met with this old Mongoloid stock at a very early date when it shared the continent with the northward spreading Mediterraneans. Um, so again, he's, he's, he's kind of resisting more modern uh, mixing as kind of the root of British civilization. He's, he sees the racial origins as older. He says, I, as I understand this, this the, the track of his argument. And he kind of goes on a, an old idea that like even a small amount of, of darker, like darker races blood in a population will darken the whole population very quickly, but it doesn't mean a significant kind of cultural impact. He writes, whether the gales were light or dark when arriving in England would seem to be an open question and not an altogether vital one, since a very slight contact with a dark race is sufficient to darken the pigmentation of the blonde stock. So he kind of concludes then, yeah, maybe there was a few, a little bit of race mixing, but not wholesale, like, assimilation of different groups. Um, he writes again, for instance, dark hair, eyes, and skin pigmentation are certainly the most more basic type for homo sapiens so that a few specialized types who have assumed other characteristics easily fall back to old patterns whenever the least predisposition predisposition occurs that's it that is it's hard to make brunettes blonde and easy to make blondes brunettes right so he's he's basing this on on kind of racial theories of the day which he obviously accepted um but but he's not really convinced of of whole-scale mixing of these groups. Um, but he again repeats that this cult, this legend stuff is really something fascinating, right? And he talks a little bit about, like, the idea of that, that the Irish were originally Greeks, right? This legendary idea of, of Parthel and on. Um, and he says, I always read these tales thinking that these essentially were Greeks. Um, um, but he, he says, for instance, you know, when you get to these legends, though, where, where these specific places are, it's a bit vague. And, and sometimes these legends talk about regions in a broad stroke. And he talks about the same thing. We see other folklore, even like Prester John or El Dorado, these other legends 
that have have kind of morphed over time all right but he's not he's not saying there's not based on some truth to it though um, and then lovecraft goes on a little bit more about culture mixing so he starts with race mixing shifts to legend stuff um kind of agreeing with howard on how important they are but maybe coming to different conclusions and then he gets into culture mixing and he separates these two conversations so the race mixing and the culture mixing and he gets more specifically at what's going on in britain between the ceramic the brythonic the gales and all these um and he says he kind of sums up here probably i suppose they came from eastern europe or perhaps from some uh, part of spain or southern gaul where they had held out against other elements for a long period i have doubts regarding any oriental theory so again, he's saying that Oriental theory that you established, I don't buy. Um, and he kind of sums things up at, at the end saying, really, he, he's very prescient here. He knows that this conversation is really ultimately about civilization. And he quotes here, Elliot Smith. Now, Elliot Smith uh, wrote a bunch of books in the, like the late 19th century, early 20th century on like evolution and migration in early culture. He wrote a book called The Ancient Egyptians and Their Influence Upon the Civilizations of Europe, which is almost like a Black Athena argument. If you're not familiar with the Black Athena argument, that was made, I think, in the 90s or maybe even earlier. Um, it's a big, fat book. Um, the argument there, and it's been embraced by what are called Afrocentrists, is that Egypt is an African culture, and it influenced Greek, right? Like, Greek civilization owes a debt to uh, the Egyptian, and the Egyptians themselves are African, right? Now, maybe Smith doesn't go that far, but he definitely sees the Egyptians as influencing European civilization. Um, and he says, well, what do you think of this Smith argument? And he's now he's going to say, I think this is hogwash. Um, but he says there's basically three theses that Smith embraced, and he says, what do you think about this? One is civilization is not natural and inevitable right but an accident right which means it's going to happen rarely b that there's only one civilization in the history of the world that of the nile valley all others are derivative even the chinese and there are of course radical afrocentrists who still claim this view that basically all civilizations evolve eventually from from the egyptian from the first and the second point kind of evolves from the first saying civilization is so rare it can only emerge by accident and it probably only emerged once right and therefore it spread which of course is is true of humanity as a whole right we evolved once where there but there was of course at the time and i think some people still embrace it the multi-regional thesis that humans evolved in other part different parts of the world independently of each other and but through intermixing and things we're able to maintain that you know genetic commonality um but I think most anthropologists now say there's just a single origin of humanity. So for humanity, if it works, why not for civilization? Now, I don't hold to that position, obviously. But anyways, that's what he says. Um, even saying like somehow even the American civilizations evolved ultimately from the Nile. Um, and then the, th the third point, C, he's got A, B, C here, the three points. Uh, the, th the third point is that we commonly overestimate the antiquity of Neolithic Europe and that later Neolithic races were contemporary with the great Eastern civilizations, picking up many of their inhabit inhabitants from there. So this is basically saying early European, like Neolithic cultures, um, 
aren't as old as we thought, and basically Europeans are, are youngsters, and they're more influenced by Asia, um, which there might be, I think that there might, that might hold up current scholarship, I'm not sure. But anyways, he says, I don't stomach this. I can't swallow it, he says. Quote, I think that civilization is the inevitable consequence of a long and subtle existence of an intelligent race, and that any such race would develop an independent culture if left long enough without having a ready-made culture transmitted to it. So this is very key for Lovecraft, obviously, right? So that's why he's a little bit hesitant of, of a thesis of world history focusing on migration and mobility, and Howard seems a little bit more open to it. Right, um, but that's that. That's the first two letters, and it's a fascinating exchange. I, I do urge you to to read it. Um, now we're this. I'm 37 minutes in to this, 36 minutes into this episode. I've only talked about two two letters uh, essentially, um, and one cornerstone debate. But that's good because I want to do this right. I want to, you know, get as much of this down as possible. Um, but anyways, let's move on. Um, if I do find these episodes to be unwieldy, I'll, I'll cut this down and do more episodes. But we'll see if I can do 100 pages of these in an episode. If I can't, we'll just do more of these. There's no reason to be just to necessarily stick to the plan. All right. Um, the next letter we have is not very long later, August 9th, 1930. And it's another typed letter from Howard to Lovecraft. All right, so the, the next letter we can look at is dated August 9th, 1930. This was uh, to, to Lovecraft by, by Howard. Um, so this letter, like many of the early letters in this series, begins with a lot of flattery towards Lovecraft about his work, um, you know, about particularly in this case, the fungi of Yugoth. And he really, I think Lovecraft sent him more of those poems in the cycle, and Howard seemed to love them all. So, um, but he jumps into a conversation back to what they were talking about before with the origins of, of the Celtic people of Britain with a discussion of, of race and, and kind of memory and folklore and these kinds of things. It's kind of mixed together a little bit. He even throws in a weird tale here uh, talking about uh, uh, a story he wrote called The Lost Race. And he says, I'm not scholar enough to present any logical arguments. Your observations regarding the Mongoloid Aborigines and their first relation to the fairy tales of Western Europe especially interest me. Um, so he kind of plays with this idea of maybe these Parth Partholan legends that, that kind of suggest that the people of Ireland originated in, in Greece or whatever maybe have some, some roots. And he plays with uh, uh, some of these legends, uh, maybe even to Egypt, connecting some of them. But he does sort of surrender a little bit, saying, regarding oriental phases in the Celtic language, you're doubtless right in attaching little significance to it. Indeed, the likeness of Gaelic to Semitic seems too slight to warrant basing any theory on it, unquote. Now, of course, he did just make this theory a couple letters ago, but you can tell he's being a little bit, uh, you know, not fighting this particular battle with, with Lovecraft um, on this point. Again, like when you're dealing with these languages, these deep roots, it's hard to know know the truth about it but at the same time he does provide some philological evidence of this connection between irish and hebrew languages and things he actually goes into some of the uh, 
theological details if you're interested in it. It's on page 34 of A Means to Freedom, where he talks about the, the various letters and things like that and some of the connections. He gives, for example, N, it's called Nun in Ash Tree. In Hebrew, it's called Nun from the sound. Um, and he says, oh, it is the positive vowel of the diphthong or the spindle tree. And we find this diphthong in the Hebrew as Heb, Geolat, Jens, etc. So he's just doing uh, what linguists do, look for the cognates, look for shared words, see how they change over time, and try to establish a, a glottochronology and therefore establish cultural connections in the prehistoric past. Um, so he sort of concludes here, the remarks regarding the Celtic likeness to Greek and Latin and other Aryan languages are, of course, besides the point, nor is there any particular reason, I admit, in supposing that the Semitic semblances are other than mere coincidence and later additions to language borrowed perhaps from the Latin. However, I cannot believe the ancient world was knit more closely together than is generally supposed. So he does stand on this idea of cultural connections in the, in the ancient world, right? That it's not just a product of, of medieval migrations, but in the ancient world there were migrations and movements and cultures were connecting and sharing you know, languages and cultures, which of course is, this is again the heart of their disagreement. Um, so then he kind of jumps to talk a little bit about uh, Bel, uh, this, I guess this Baal, I guess the Semitic God, right? You know, from the Bible story, uh, the worshiping of Baal and connecting this to the Celtic God, Bell, uh, which is associated with the term Bali. So he's able to kind of establish some folklore evidence for his position as well. So he's still ultimately sticking to the idea of some kind of Semitic roots or a tangled legends that, that show commonalities between uh, Irish and, and Semitic uh, religions. Now, then he goes to cite a, a historian um, and I'm not sure who this is. He doesn't know. He doesn't have the name for it. Um, but he says this. Uh, his theory was the Western Europe was first settled in the nomadic, by a nomadic tribe of Celts whose language was the basis of modern Gaelic. That these primitive Gaels were driven into the outer fringes by the more powerful Brythians who became Gauls, Belgae, and Simri. That the legends of Parlanon Sorry, the, the legend of Parlanon refers to the first settlement of Ireland by these Gaels, and that the plague to which is described their destruction really refers to an invasion by Britons who disposed them of the more fertile parts of the island. Um, and he says, I think this is plausible. He's a historian. I'm going to defer to him. Um, saying, I believe that the Gauls or Brythons are supposed to have come out of Central Asia, crossing North Russia, possibly Scandinavian countries, and coming down into France through. Germany. Now, he does maintain humility in this letter, um, but ultimately he's, he does still think civilization is being a product of, of, of mixture and mobility. Um, then, then he takes on the Professor Smith stuff, um, and he says, I believe like you that civilization is a natural and inevitable consequence, whether good or evil, I'm not prepared to say. As to the single civilization theory, no doubt the Egyptian culture greatly influenced the rest of the world to a large extent. Though I had thought that as early as 6,000 BC, the pre-Semitic Sumerians had a civilization somewhat superior to the contemporary Egyptian one. Perhaps the Grecian culture had a basis of Egyptian, transmitted through the conquered Cretans. Through it, though it appears to me that the Hellenic invaders, rather than adopting it as their own, separate, reared a separate civilization on the ruins of Mycenae civilization. 
Um, so he, he has some doubts about the Smith thesis as well, but a slightly different take. He doesn't go quite as strong as Lovecraft does in, in saying that like civilization is preferable. Um, he says maybe it's not. Right. Um, so the letter sort of ends with him asking about, about Lovecraft gods. Um, he says like there's not a single culture in, in folklore, things like that, in Texas. Texas is kind of a frontier mixture. Um, but then he asks like what, where did you get these gods from? Um, and he says I see your gods, Cthulhu, Yogg-Sothoth, etc., in other weird fiction. So does it predate you or whatever? Obviously, we know that that Lovecraft invented these gods and people in the circle adopted them as own stories. And in some cases, Lovecraft revised these stories and actually included these things in. He also asked about the origin of the Necronomicon and things like that. So, um, uh, you know, the answer to that we know, but it does come up in the next letter. Um, so the next letter we need to look at is dated August 14th, 1930. And this one is uh, Lovecraft to Howard. Um, and again, he starts by talking about weird fiction. Um, but he, he says, like, he connects this to some of their conversation about folklore, especially the Kobold legends, which are kind of a, a Northwest Europe kind of legend, British culture um, from those cultures on Britain and Ireland. And he says, he here he makes his first, to, to Howard anyway, specific call out to, to Margaret Murray's 1921 book, The Witch Cults of Western Europe which, as we've known from this podcast for a while, is one of his favorite uh, books of anthropology, arguing that, that pre-Christian uh, beliefs were sustained into the Christian era and manifest in vernacular cultures, particularly the witch cults. Now, as for their discussion about Irish, origins of the Irish and the, and the Welsh and all that, he, he sort of caps this debate a little bit he kind of says well we're going to have to ultimately defer to scholars on this um he still kind of thinks he's howard's making too much of eastern oriental influences but he just sort of says you know we can't really know too much the details of these prehistoric tribal movements um but you can tell he's more interested in this question of smith's theory of an egyptian origin of civilization um and he writes, Smith's theory of a single origin for all civilization is set back somewhat by the scholars who maintain that Mayan mathematics at certain points in advance of Egyptians or any old world mathematicians of the same period. Um, so he, he basically says, well, there's too much evidence of, of other cultures developing autonomously of, of some kind of Egyptian roots for this thesis to be sustainable uh, in the radical form. Now, I guess Lovecraft's compromise position, and this might be a compromise with Howard as well, is saying Egypt flowered so early that her neighbors couldn't help picking up ideas at the time when they, their own culture state was very primitive and receptive. But I think S. Smith is wrong in claiming that none of these neighbors would have been likely to evolve any culture without this accident-born prototypes to imitate. Um, then the letter ends with basically him saying, well, I invented these gods. These are mostly my creations. And he has a whole page where he talks about some and, and how some of his friends created other gods like Clark Ashton Smith invented uh, Sathagoa, um, who we've seen in some of the revisions and, and a few others. And he also talks about the origin of the Necronomicon and where he got the idea for it and the name and, and, and all that. So that's that letter. It's a rather short letter and it does 
Not entirely, but it does sort of wrap up, I guess, their introductory conversation about Celtic roots, if you will. Um, our next little letter is is the eighth, which is a a handwritten postcard. Um, the, the the eighth total letter between the two. Um, Lovecraft to Howard, and he's just talking about Quebec. And we've talked about the Quebec trip at this time in our exploration of the selected letters of, of Lovecraft, and we know how influential that trip was on him. Um, now, this is followed by a letter to Lovecraft that we don't have anymore. It's not extant, but it was dated September 1930. But we do have Howard's reply. So we can tell their discussion kind of goes in new ways. We get the sense he, he mentioned a lot about Quebec. Um, and that's how Howard opens the letter, saying, wow, I, you know, you're really lucky to be able to go to Quebec. Um, and he also is a little more talking about weird fiction. Um, August Derleth, uh, Long, and, and other people that he is promoting in his conversation with Howard. Now, certainly Lovecraft got on, for some reason, got on to talking about the Persians. This must have been a follow-up to their Smith conversation, because he doesn't go back to the Irish thing so much, except maybe tangentially. There's a little mention here of the Celts, but largely he's interested in the relationship between the Persians and the, and the, and the Aryans, right? Now, I guess we now understand that the Indo-European languages, that's actually the Indo-Iranian European languages, right? The Indo-Indian languages have two branches, right? And that they're the Persians and the South Asian languages, and they're sort of tied together. Um, but he says this, as regarding the Persians and their relation towards the Aryan race as a whole, about the only difference between them and the Mesopotamian races seems to be a more kindly attitude on the part of the Persians toward conquered races. So this is uh, Howard sort of respond to whatever Lovecraft was saying about, about the Persians. And he kind of suggests in terms of these kind of violent primordial cultures, there are, there's differences based on race. He, he writes, the Western races seem partial to hand-to-hand -hand fighting, a natural preference considering their superior strength and statue, stature. Now this begins a, a lot of fun these two are going to have talking about like fighting styles of different ethnic groups and races. Uh, my favorite quote comes later uh, in this series of letters where, where Lovecraft talks about how the Italians are really good at knives, and later they were introduced with a machine gun, but this changed their fighting style. It's really preposterous, but a lot of fun. He's kind of suggesting there's racial roots to, to the, the Italian mafia using, you know, knives. But where I think Howard's interesting here is he talks about the bow as a, as a tool of conquest and therefore kind of a spreading civilizations, and he uses the technology of the bow as a way to kind of trace migrations of people over time. He says, I mean, it, I, uh, my belief is that archery is an art and science of war originated with the Mongoloid races, was imparted to the easternmost ancestors of the Danes, and then spread by them over Europe. So this is kind of another, he's trying to push in another idea of, of kind of being Oriental influences, maybe a Central Asiatic origin of, of, of civilizations. All right, so there's a lot of kind of wild stuff here about about the Persians and bows and, and again, him trying to suggest a, s a spreading out from Central Asia of these different cultures. Um, he mentions here Medusa's Coil, which uh, which is what to be published at this time, and he says, I'll read it when it comes out. Um, but then he kind of jumps to his own views on African uh, 
legends. And this becomes very fascinating because Howard is going to have a very different attitude. They're both racist, obviously, but he's going to have a more intimate, close relationship with people of African descent living as he does in Texas. And he's, he's, and he's, he seems to have a really profound interest in African legends, more so than, than I think Lovecraft has. But he talks about how like slavery, and of course East Texas had slavery, it was a slave state, um, and how enslaved African Americans had with them different cultures. And he's even able to pull down like his own ancestors' plantations. He says, well, my ancestors never misused slaves. Uh, so I, I think we can take that claim with a grain of salt. But he says, uh, my Aunt Mary told how one day when the black people were in the fields, a hot wind swept over them and they knew that old Mrs. Bonaham was dead. Returning to the manor house, they found that it was so and the slaves danced and shouted with joy. And that's like a local witch uh, that he's talking about here. And he just thinks these, this, this kind of folklore tradition is really vibrant and interesting. That's something he wants to see incorporated into stories, that's, which is why he's kind of glad to see Medusa's coil coming out because that that seems to fit his perspective here and seems to fit that idea of bringing into his into weird fiction this this more diverse folklore and he gives other examples of black folklore he says uh, for instance uh the tale remains basically the same two or three men usually negroes are traveling in a wagon through some isolated district usually a broad deserted river bottom Mm. they come to the ruins of the once thriving plantation at dusk, I decide to spend the night in a deserted plantation house. The house is always huge, brooding, and forbidding, and always as the men's approach the high-column veranda through the high weeds that surround the house, great numbers of pigeons rise from their roosting places on the railing and fly away. The men sleep in the big front room with its crumbling fireplace, and in the night, they are awakened by a jaggling of chains, weird noises, and groans from upstairs. End quote. So it's like a haunted house story. And if you've read Medusa's Coil, you know, we have a similar idea of people going into a plantation house while traveling and then not really being haunted, but um, something scary happens. Or in that case, in the case of the story, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that he hears from the residents of it. But it is sort of a haunted house nonetheless. And he talks about how he was really into and inspired by and, and freaked out often by black folklore. And he concludes... Negroes are an interesting study. There used to be darkies who vowed that they could see the wind and said it was reddish in color and, and different things like that. And he even talks about like a black philosopher on one of these local plantations. So really fascinating stuff here. And this is our, I guess our first real moment and when this conversation kind of shifts to looking at, at uh, American cultures and American regional cultures, which is going to be a major theme in their their discussion. And that's going to lead to a lot of uh, at least some rather tedious sections where we get like Lovecraft giving the history of New England, as we'll see shortly. So this kind of, I guess that's the heart of what uh, is going on in this, this Howard letter. Um, he talks a little bit more about other stories, uh, Mackin, Durleth, and a little bit more on the on the Quebec trip and his envy, uh, his en- enviness, his envy towards Lovecraft for his ability to go to go to Quebec. All right, now this is followed by a a letter that we don't have anymore. Um, so far, I think both have have kind of misplaced some of these letters, but I think we're missing more Lovecraft letters than Howard letters. So. Um, I guess Howard wasn't keeping them as carefully as Lovecraft was. 
Um, but I don't know. Who knows what happens to some of these letters? But anyways, this one was supposedly September 1930. Then we get, uh, uh, I think this one is fairly long. Maybe well, not too bad. Five or six pages. Uh, Howard replied to this letter, also dated September 1930. Now, this letter seems to be a lot of short replies to different things Lovecraft uh, brought up in the, the previous letter to him. Um, you know, he talks about the Etruscans and the racial origins of the Etruscan people um, and kind of looking for evidence of how they kind of emerged to be the center of the Roman Empire. He does the same thing looking at like the difference between the Bedouin Arabs and the Jews, both migratory nomadic people who could establish states from time to time. There are some maybe interesting parallels, but he kind of sees them as uh, he kind of says it's like the Cain and Abel story or more Esau and Jacob. Uh, he doesn't mention Ishmael and, 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 and Isaac, but that, I guess that also that might be might be part of it. Not sure. Um, now, he also talks a little bit more about love, of witchcraft here. Um, and you could tell that Howard was really kind of piqued, or his interest was piqued, I should say, by uh, this discussion of, of witchcraft. And it's a shame we don't have Lovecraft's commentary on witchcraft here, although we've seen it enough to maybe know where, what he's, where he's coming from here. He writes, you're quite correct in saying that the demonry of one's own race is more real and vivid than of some other race. I, I think here he must be, Lovecraft must have been replying to Howard's long discussion of black folklore. And you can imagine Lovecraft saying, well, obviously our own folklore is more interesting than the folklore of, an, of a foreigner. Um, that's a position Howard never fully embraces, but he, he kind of concedes here. Yeah, you're right. And then let's talk about the witchcraft here. Um, what deformed branch, he writes, on the Tree of Progress, that witchcraft phase of Puritan New England became? To what basis do you attribute it? Religious fanaticism stretched beyond human boundaries and producing abnormalities or an inherent abnormality in the people that produced the fanaticism, end quote. Um, and he also then goes into Teutonic horror stories. So he does come halfway to Lovecraft's position, but you don't get the sense he really stops believing that black folklore really is fascinating and interesting. I think this this really gets into the the heart of their their kind of regional conversation. Howard insisting on very well, both agreeing that there's distinct regions of the United States, but uh, Howard trying to, you know, expand Lovecraft's appreciation for 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 the folklore that he was ensconced in. Now he talks throughout here too about different possibilities of different how folklore can be used in stories. He talks about the murder ranch. Uh, which is a very, very local belief close to where he lived. Um, there was a bunch of crimes. There's still some skeletons in this ranch. It's kind of like a haunted ranch. Um, that He says that could be a good story. He talks about the murder traveler story, which, of course, is a common trope in, in fiction. Um, ghost switch tales um, are the ones. So he And he kind of is playing with different possible ideas for for fiction here now at this point after this howard gets into a conversation about immigration now they're going to agree a lot on immigration um now there might be differences of perspective on the margins but by and large they seem to agree uh that america is being overrun by by foreigners of of dubious value uh, he writes 
this is Howard again. Uh, you mentioned the Italian invasion of New England brings up a phase of American life that always filled me with resentment, that of the overflowing of the country with low-class foreigners. I've seen that happen in Texas. The state is slowly being taken over by a South and Central European population. Louisiana is already overrun with Italians who were brought in to work the corporate corporation-owned plantations, and they swamped in the cities. Conditions in the Latin Quarter of New Orleans are of almost unbelievable filth and depravity. Um, now, the Mexicans uh, in Texas, he's a little bit more nuanced about because he does see them more as, a, as an American population that have some kind of historical right to the land. Um, but he also sees them as a bit of a threat. He kind of uses the trope that's still around of Mexicans taking jobs by willing to work for low wages. Um, you know, that they're, you know, he says here they're dirty, they're, they carry diseases and things like that. But he says, I still look with tolerance on those already here and prefer the Mexican to the Italian. After all, Mexicans have some claim to priority for his ancestor greeted Cortez. Um, but the, when he gets, when he gets past this kind of racist, xenophobic section of the conversation, he does talk more broadly about immigrant influences in America and how it contributes to American diversity. And he mentions like uh, regions with German immigration. He mentions uh, areas with, with Mexican influence. And, and he does say like the best immigrants in Texas are Germans. Um, quoting, to quote him, he says, they are thrifty, law-abiding, and hardworking, superior in living standards to the Mexicans and Sicilians who swarm to our coasts. Um, so, uh, a little bit of a nuance here in his conversation about immigration, but still largely agreeing with Lovecraft that there's a problem of immigration. And we know the letter that Lovecraft sent must have talked about the, the Irish immigration into New England, and, and we'll see more on that in future letters. So, the next letter we have is a super long one, um, but I'll have to kind of summarize its content as, as best I can. It's, it's 30 pages almost. I think it's, it's actually 35 pages or so. Um, it is Lovecraft to Howard, October 4th, 1930. So I'm going to be uh, rather uh, a little bit superficial here because we're already at an hour mark. And it's, it definitely is. One reason we can do this is there's a long here conversation about Massachusetts history. But I'll just highlight the important aspects of this. Now, this letter opens up with uh, quite a bit about uh, Semitic cultures uh, and the relationship between the Jews and the Arabs. Um, and, of course, uh, he kind of sums it up this way. He says, uh, my own guess is that the Alpine Semitic type, the queer-eyed, queer-featured type that we historically regard as Jewish, was originally confined to the fertile valleys and plains and, not, and did not include the early Jews at all, these later being a homogenous with the Arabs and thus chiefly Mediterranean, end quote. So he's kind of saying there are, there, there, it seems to me, he's sort of saying there's the sedentary Jewish people, which is the origin of the culture we see as Jewish, and then there's the more nomadic group, which is more associated with the Arab, Arab uh, peoples. Uh, he writes, the Arab today is better representative of the prehistoric Abrahamic Jew than any type historically known as Jewish. And I don't know how much to make of this argument. Uh, it just, he's trying, I think, to, to find a more stable, sedentary foundation for Jewish culture. 
but maybe I'm pushing it too far, pushing kind of a preconceived notion of what his argument is here. Um, but, you know, he's trying to find these kind of cultural divisions in the Middle East between kind of the Jews and the Arabs. He doesn't want to see them as just one group. He sees them as separate civilizations and the Byzantine culture versus the, the Arab culture. Even saying Byzantine culture was by all odds the leading Aryan civilization in the region. Um, and he sees like the Middle East Islamic culture as a separate one. And his evidence for this is the Arabian Nights. Quote, the Arabian Nights gives a vivid glimpse of this brilliant, mature, stimulating civilization. And it is an internal pity that we were destined to fight against it instead to learn from it. We must regret the Crusades. We certainly need not regret the earlier victory of Charles Martel. That's fascinating, right? So he's kind of against empire here, uh, if you want to see the Crusades as an early example of empire. It's like the victory of Charles Martel, of course, that was when the Arabs invaded Spain and ultimately France, and you had that defeat. Battle of Tours, was it? Where uh, the, the Franks under Charles Martel stopped the Arab, you know, Islamic expansion in the region, right? So that was a good battle because we were stopping this foreign culture from displacing the European one. But in contrast, the Crusades were misguided because it was trying to supplant uh, the Middle Eastern culture, which was established there with a Christian one. You also get the sense that there's a, this hostility to Christianity implied in this argument, the Crusades being driven by Christianity, and he, and he kind of throws out here saying something like, the Europeans probably would have been better off if they just stayed Druids or whatever, or, or stayed embracing their pre-Christian religions rather than embracing that. And this, and this even he's able to tie a little bit to Abdul Hazared um, and some of the Oriental influences on his own his own mythology. All right, so this leads us to a very very long discussion, which I probably will say just read it yourself if you're interested in it, um, where he talks about the history of Rhode Island. Um, it's about, like, like I said, it's, it's about half of this very long letter is about regional identity, about kind of local citizenship and local history. And he's using, of course, his, the history of his own state, Rhode Island, to some degree, the larger New, uh, New England region, but he focuses on Rhode Island here. And he gets in a lot of details about like even the divisions in Rhode Island between like the Roger Williams group and other groups of, of, of whites there, the Indians in the region. Um, the maritime history of Rhode Island is talked about a lot and how this contributed to the diversity of the group. Uh, so he's aware of early New England history having encounters with other cultures right portuguese uh different maritime populations africans you got the slave trade is a is a big part of this conversation as well obviously many rhode island merchants were involved directly into the into in in the in the slave trade and so you have the kind of this maritime new england history at the same time you have the narragesett planters with their specialization in dairy and cheeses and wool exports and things like that, which is, I guess, the more rural uh, features of, of Rhode Island's history, right? Now, he connects a little bit his own family history here, but at the same time, he's connecting that family history 
and the history of Rhode Island to the history of the slave trade, right? And the arrival of black people to, to New England via the slave trade. And he doesn't sugarcoat this. This was obviously part of the history. It's something he does to great brilliance in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, I think, because in many ways that, maybe not the whole story, but much of the story is a metaphor or an allegory for, for uh, exploitation of enslaved men and women and other maritime people who were moved around by the Atlantic world. Uh, he also talks about the, the local contrast between Newport and Providence, again, that being kind of the contrast between the maritime and the, and the rural uh, aspects of, of Rhode Island. So all of this, I'm skipping over a lot here um, and not going into quite the detail that I did earlier in this podcast with some of the other letters, partially because I think we talked about this a little bit in some of the other selected letters where he dealt with New England history, but also it is on its own just a, a wonderful personal reflection on, on one's local history. The point here being that both Howard and Lovecraft are going to dig deep into their own local cultures and traditions in their conversation with each other, establishing pretty convincingly that there are these kind of regional cultures in America shaped by their own experiences of migration and cultural roots and different folklores and things like that. And they're both able to connect it to their own family histories in ways like Lovecraft talks about his own family's settlement uh, and their beliefs and things like that. And in the same way that Howard talks about how his ancestors had slaves and certain slave stories got passed on through the family line through that history. Um, so it's a wonderful section, but again, it's, it's very, very long. It's about 15, 15 pages, um, but worth reading, worth reading, because it just is a, it's, it's, it's Lovecraft at his best in terms of his letter writing of documenting his regional history. Then he says, well, you're right, Howard. You're right, Tubica Tugun, Bob, about the need to kind of have local folklore shaping histories. Like the murder ranch idea would be a great story. Um, and he says, I want to someday tackle the Narragusset legends someday. He doesn't really do it, as far as I know, but who's having the idea of, of doing that. And he talks about, um, you know, Massachusetts legends, uh, old witchcraft stories. Of course, Lovecraft would uh, often go back to, to the local witchcraft traditions for, for story ideas. So um, then this leads him to talk about uh, New England folklore. So he went from New England history to New England folklore, um, and particularly witchcraft. Witchcraft is, is the go-to kind of theme in New England folklore for, for Lovecraft. Um, he does say there's a little bit of diversity here, right? Um, quote, there was another, there's still another reason, he writes, for Massachusetts crime and abnormality, a reason rather embarrassing to many upholders of the myth that Massachusetts blood is the kind of unofficial patent of nobility. This was the rapid importation after 1635 of a vile class of degenerate London scum as indentured servants. We escaped this in Rhode Island, since at first we were too poor to have many servants at all, and later used Indians and Negroes. But Massachusetts needed servants sooner and did not have our penchant for exotics. Hence, in addition to enslaving some local Indians and importing a few Negroes and Carib Indians from the West Indies, went out on a large scale for bound English labor. End quote. But you can tell Lovecraft's just sort of saying, well, this is a conduit for uh, vernacular religious beliefs. 
right? Now, he also blames it a little bit on the Puritans for their harsh suppression of, of cultural diversity. Kind of basically when you suppress something, it just becomes uh, embers on the land. Um, and this, then he gets into the reality of witchcraft. So he makes an argument here for witchcraft being a real group. So he's taking the Murray argument and applying it to New England. And he does pull go back all the way to to uh, European history here, talking about how various groups suppressed these Druidic cultures and pre-Christian cultures, and these cults, be, you know, had certain identifiable commonalities, suggesting a, a common tradition. Um, quote: When Christianity made its appearance, the persecution of the cult became infinitely strengthened, since this new faith had so fanatical a hatred of everything pertaining to eroticism so we got a, an interesting commentary here that that witchcraft had an eroticism maybe in its relationship with the black man or whatever or in its its witch's sabbath that became something that had to be smashed by the by the christians and here's what he insists on he's trying to argue that these weren't just these were just legends that these were actually real traditions he says, let us appreciate, therefore, that the first medieval oppressors of witchcraft were not mere fanatics fighting the shadow. They were deluded in that they thought themselves to be fighting something supernatural, but they were most certainly right in believing that they were fighting a genuine menace. Of course, reports of witchcraft far exceeded the actual numbers of incidences of its practice, so that many individual witch condemnations were indeed unjust. Also, the legend of witch ceremonies undoubtedly spread far beyond the actual areas in which the real cults had activities, end, end quote. So it might be overblown. It might not have gone as far as they said, but it certainly was there um, as a tradition. And then he again caps this conversation saying, read the witch cults of Western Europe. This will have all the evidence you need of this, of this belief. And then he, she, he goes in a summary of, of Murray's argument. Um, which is that witch cults, there were real covens of, of witches um, rooted in these pre-Christian cultures. So another fascinating conversation. Again, this is a super, super long letter, um, and you have this very, very long history of New England, but you also have a pretty substantial examination of witch lore and, and witch folklore. Good stuff, certainly. He mentions here Whippoorwills the Psychopomp, something we've seen in the Dunwich Horror and a few other tales, I believe. Um, he's not sure if that's like a new world or an old world legend, but it's certainly a local belief. He has. That, or that New England embraced. Now, there's a little talk here about uh, Celtic bloodlines uh, among some of his friends and things like that, and maybe among the Lovecraft line itself. Um, but it's just a, it's a couple pages, but a lot of it's personal family history and things like that. But the really interesting capstone of this letter, this, again, this very, very long, substantial letter, is thoughts about immigration. So we've seen Howard talk about immigration as a severe threat to, to America, bringing in kind of these dubious elements, particularly locally in Texas. And Lovecraft writes, as we might expect, as for the foreign overrunning America, that is certainly the most tragic event in the continent's history. The very essence of the real civilization is the continuous doing of generations on the same soil in the same manner. You know, highlight that. That's, that's the Lovecraft argument about civilization. 
right? Summed up once again. He doesn't deny it. It's not something we have to dig for. It's right there again and again in his letters. Uh, and to a certain degree in his stories too. The very essence of a real civilization is the continuous dwelling of generations on the same soil in the same manner so that the race becomes fixed to landscape and a body of stable, genuine traditions and folk ways grow up to give each new generation a sense of comfortable placement and interest and significance. And he says this was started by the first generation of settlers in the Americas, yet it was undermined by, it's not being undermined now, by policies that encourage ethnic diversity, right? Economic rapacity demanded cheap labor, and the popular industrial policy was to rake in any sort of human scum with a low living standard and correspondingly low-wage demands. Nordics of so squalid a sort couldn't be found, so Latins and Slavs were imported, end quote. So he, he does sort of blame this on capitalism and the profit motive and the desire to bring in cheap labor. But ultimately, he thinks this is going to dilute uh, American civilization. And he says, like, maybe not all the countries as bad off as, as New York and New England. Right? We know he originally thought New England was the worst. But we, after we returned to Providence, he started to see the same things happen there. And he started to see it more as a generalized East Coast problem. Um, but he says, you know, it, apparently it's happening there in, in the South, too. Um, but he does say there are pockets where this isn't true. And he mentions, uh, you know, upstate New York. He mentions Charleston uh, and a few other places. But he sums up here. It might make a great nation, another Babylon or Carthage or Rome, but it wouldn't be my nation. What I belong to is old England colony of Rhode Island, end quote. So he's not saying a, a civilization can't succeed, right? Of course, the Byzantine Empire uh, succeeded being like this kind of imported Greek culture, right? It's just taken away what was established there. It's destructive, even if it creates greatness. Um, and then he says, well, I didn't know this about Louisiana being ridden with Italians. That's a real pity. Um, but this sort of sums, wraps up this letter. So again, this is a very, very good letter to, to read. Again, it's, it's like 35 pages. Much of it's on New England history, particularly Rhode Island history, and much is about the witches. Um, and there's also a huge section on immigration. So again, this is October 4th, 1930. Um, one of, in this early section, one of the key letters to, to look at. All right. Um, after this, there is a, a letter sent by Lovecraft to Howard. We don't know if it's a postcard or a letter. Probably was more like a postcard. Um, and then we finally get Howard's re reply to, to that long letter that, that Lovecraft wrote. Um, and I think I'm going to end on this. I'm going to end on this letter. That'll be about 100 pages or so. So I guess it didn't take as long as I thought it would. Um, so this is typeset, October 1930. Um, and he starts out talking about Red Thunder and the Whisper in Darkness, Red Thunder being a Howard tale. And he's praising uh, some of Lovecraft's stories and really happy to hear The Whisper in Darkness is going to be published in Weird Tales. As, as often, the stuff is dealt with early in the letter. So he comes back right away to this question of immigration in Texas. Um, and they actually say like, oh, San Antonio is kind of nice. It's a nice place to visit. Um, it, but it's a Catholic town. 
um, a lot of my diversity, Mexicans, Chinese, other groups. Um, but he says it's, it's kind of a lawless, crime-ridden area. A lot of kind of like lower order types being there. He writes, some of these missions are still in use, talking about old Catholic missions. He says, living conditions are naturally low in San Antonio and a great deal of lawlessness exists. The lower country, as it's called here in West Texas, swarms with mixed breeds of various nationalities who mixing with the old lawless Scotch, Irish and Texas stock produce desperate characters, end quote. But you can kind of get the sense that that Howard's kind of eager about this. He, it's like it's not entirely bad. It may be bad in the terms of, you know, it's bringing in these immigrant elements that he's doesn't seem too fond of but he kind of digs that that rough and frontier culture that kind of pops up there um but he also talks about this as, as kind of a racially diverse group uh you know the first pioneers made it freely with indians and mexican women talking about the the i guess the spaniards who come who came and spread their offspring wide then followed the cattlemen always a law of this race in whatever country they're found these like the hunters were mostly of English, Irish, Scotch, Irish stock, and they came and came from the southern states. End quote. So Texas then becomes uh, a place of repeated migrations and immigrant groups. Right, the Spanish, Spanish. Then you have these uh, other these British people who come. Then you have uh, those the people from the south. Right, the slaveholders who come in from the south and settle East Texas, bringing their slaves with them. Um, and then you have the more recent migrations. So Texas is always a, a space of, of migration. Quote, but to return to the lower country, you can see what amalgamation of the various breeds would produce in many cases, where the mixture is of Indian, Mexican, pioneering British stock, German, Polak, and Latin. Of course, many of the older families, both American and German, have held themselves apart from the rabble and intermarried with their own race and with each other. But the later arrivals from Europe tend to mix and mingle without rhyme or reason. So then he talks about maybe using some of these ideas about the Etruscans or the Arabs to create stories. And we know like Howard would write things about the Crusades. He would write uh, tales set. In, he would publish in Oriental Tales, for instance. So. I don't know when those were published compared to this letter, but it's something. Um, he actually mentions here Oriental Tales. He says this interest of his in the Orient was revived by an appearance of Mr. Wright's Oriental Stories magazine, to which I've contributed a number of tales. So apparently he already wrote some of these tales for Oriental Stories and had already been, you know, kind of interested in this culture. He wrote a, a great story about Saladin. Um, he replies a little bit to this long discussion Lovecraft gave about the history of Rhode Island, saying, you know, usually each American only knows their own region and certainly knows yours very well. Um, and, and he kind of kind of hinting, hinting at this uh, localism, this regionalism of American civilization. Um, but he's pretty depressed about the current trend towards democracy right he says it's a fashion of the democratic modern age to jeer loudly at old aristocratic rule days but i'll be damned if i see anything practically inspiring particularly inspiring about the present day trend i see in this age neither a dignified civilization nor a clean virile barbarism capable of producing a later culture again a wonderful summation of i think his point i'll say it again i see in this age 
neither a dignified civilization nor a clean, virile barbarism capable of producing a later culture. Now, the first position here, that's like Lovecraft, right? A dignified civilization. But Howard's point is that barbarism can be the foundation of a later culture. He, he's actually kind of embracing the ideas of someone like Ibn Khaldun, the, the North African philo philosopher and historian who argued that cycles of history come as nomadic people conquer an empire, become sedentary, and then become decadent over time. So he gets a little bit into Rhode Island's relationship with slavery, and he certainly is interested in that aspect of it. Um, now, at this point, the letter gets a little mixed. He deals with like, cleaning up with different conversations they have, because previously Lovecraft was talking about maybe he had some own, his own kind of Celtic roots in his family and, and Howard's sort of response to that. They go back to some of the things they were talking about with early British history. He writes, like you, I would very much like to see Stonehenge or the Druidic Forest. I can never quite bring myself to believe the tales of Druidic atrocities and debased worship. Most of these tales were spread by the Romans, who always accused their victim of hideous deeds, mainly to excuse their own cruelties. And so he's, he's got this interested in Stonehenge and also with these traditions, which Murray would argue would evolve into the witch cults in a way. Now, much of the rest of Howard's letter here, though, goes back to, to immigration and his poo-pooing of the idea of a melting pot. Um, he says, if we assimilate this, all the Southern and Eastern European stock, we'll just dilute the American stock. It can't really be done. Um, so he says he should, we should limit immigration. So he actually makes a policy recommendation. It's not a lot of what they do, even you'd think with the Great Depression, the New Deal coming, they spend a lot of time talking about policies. They don't really. But here Howard does say we should basically limit migration to people from the British Isles. Um, quote, I would open the doors to all the people of the British Isles. Let the other nations howl about discrimination. Why should we not discriminate? Did the Italians, Russians, the Liths settle and conquer and build this country? Did the ancient Greek colonists welcome Egyptians and Phoenicians as citizens? Or did they proudly remain Hellens? End quote. Well, the funny thing about that is is the opposite, right? The, the, the Greeks eventually colonized the Egyptian and, and the Near East, right? Anatolia and these other cultures and spread their Greek culture among them. Now, Lovecraft looks on that kind of as an unfortunate choice of the, of the Greek people. But, you know, the West is, Britain and America are colonial powers at this point in history. So, and they're certainly spreading their culture in various ways. Um, he gets a little bit into his own family history here, uh, too, talking about... Uh, so he's trying to respond, I guess, to Lovecraft's impressive summary of New England history with his own attempt to describe Texan history. He talks about his own, the Howard branch and their roots to colonial America and Georgia. Um, and, and he says, like, I don't have the same kind of connection to the early history of Texas that you have with New England. So he, he, he's kind of apologized for not building quite as erudite on, on the history of, of Texas. But he does have some conclusions to make about Texas. He talks about, for instance, the oil boom and how the oil boom is, is um, breaking up uh, some of the, the good farmland and how the ranches or the big cattle ranges were being broken up by farmers. He also talks about how the Texan people are quite nomadic 
and tend to move around a lot and how this prevents estates from really being established and permanent the way you have maybe in New England. And all this means that Texas, whatever old Texas exists, is being eroded away by, by the trends of contemporary history. Quote, the old Texas is gone or going fast. All the plains are fenced in where my childhood I have ridden for hundreds of miles without seeing a foot of barbed wire. I can't remember when I heard a coyote. And one of my earliest memories is being lulled to sleep in covered wagons camped on the New Seas River by the howling of wolves. Um, now, of course, here he's talking about, I mean, the Western history, in large part, is the, is the fight between local producers and capital. So you have like the Homestead Act. But who would get most of the land of the Homestead Act? It was the railroads, right? And the railroads eventually would screw farmers. If we go back to my episode on Frank Norris's The Octopus, and I talk all about that stuff. Um, you have the, the little prospectors competing with the big mining towns and mining corporations. You have the big uh, bonanza farms supplanting local farmers. You have the free rangers, the open field kind of rangers, being competing with the people who fenced off land and had the massive ranches so it's a conflict it's a conflict of capital versus the local producers and that's what howard here is is talking about not this directly as i just did but he is seeing the changes of of that texas was being broken up and privatized uh, he kind of talks about small farms here but really i think what's happening is it is being privatized by capital right and that's that's ties to his conversation on the oil boom as well i think He concludes here, well, it's not all civilized. There are places left where man can get out and take a deep breath. In a hundred mile stretch from Sonora to Del Rio on the border, there's not even a cluster of Mexican huts to mat the scenery. So that's his hope, I guess. The hope is there's still some untouched, uncivilized land here. Now, I'm going to kind of leave you soon uh, and talk a little bit about the rest of uh, the, I'm almost through the first hundred pages of these letters. But there begins a conversation here that's going to carry on pretty much for the rest of Howard's life uh, and his conversation with Lovecraft. And that's going to be about crime. And it begins here. He starts going, talking about frontier lawlessness and crime. And they're going to keep coming back to crime and law and order throughout this. But it starts here. And he tells stories. The way Howard does this is he tells stories of criminals in Texas kind of legend and, and history. And he goes into some, quite a lot of detail in these stories. He talks about this guy, Doc Holder. Um, and, you know, bandits. Of course, you had these bandits in, in, in the contemporary Texas at the time, right? But you also had the, old, the history of the Old West. And he goes and talks about Billy the Kid and characters like this. So he gets deep into a uh, discussion of crime. And this is going to be something they're going to go back and forth on. For, for much of the rest of their conversation. And I think it, on some level, is a reflection of their discussion on civilization um, and freedom overall. So, anyways, I think I'm going to leave you with this. I, I think uh, we've, we've talked... Well, letter 16, uh, the 16th letter in this series, is also non-extant. It's a letter by, by Lovecraft. So we'll pick up next time with, a, with another Howard letter, having missed um, Lovecraft's response to all this. And that'll be December 1930. So, um, so I'll pick that up next time. If you have this collection, you're reading along. I'm gonna I'm gonna cover pages. 
I guess 97 till let's say let's say 207 so 97 to 207 um, so until August 1931 December 1930 to to August 1931 and that will be the next kind of 100 page chunk I'm, I'm gonna look at um, and we're just gonna see where these conversations and threads go as I repeat myself as we kind of as the conversation becomes circular between the two, I'm going to just mention that that's what they're talking about and move on. I'm not going to constantly repeat myself on things, but to the degree they talk about new things and bring in new ideas, I'm going to highlight those going forward. So anyways, uh, sorry for a long episode. I, I was afraid at the beginning it was going to be even longer than this, but uh, I think an hour and a half is not too bad. So that's it. I think this is going well. And uh, at this rate, we'll have eight more episodes at about this length where I will work my way through the ideas and a means to freedom. Um, so if you have any of your own thoughts about these letters or anything I talked about or any nitpicks or anything you think I misinterpreted, please let me know. This is actually important for my own kind of writing. So I, I need to get a good handle on this debate and anything where you can help me. Um, would be great uh, i'd appreciate it so anyways that's going to be it for now uh thanks for uh listening and i'll, I'll see you next time saddle, i used to go gay. first pleasure drinking and then to cards playing i've shot in the breast and i'm dying today let's sit jolly cowboy Come carry my coffin Let's sit free